purpose of, of sacrifice as we go into uh, this evening's sermon. Before so, we begin the sermon this evening, I've got a, a short video that, that ties into the lesson. There was a, a father and, and daughter, and the, the father gave to his daughter one year for, for his birthday uh, a, a small box. She opens it up, and inside is a string of pearls. It's costume jewelry. It's plastic on a string. And it was just so beautiful. And the little girl takes the, takes the string of, of fake pearls and, and puts it on, and she wears them all that day at her birthday party and, and that night at dinner with the family. And, and then when it's time to get ready for bed, she refuses to take off the pearls and, and wears them to bed that night. And she wears them the next day and the day after that. And that whole week, and then for, for months, and she, she rarely was ever parted with this little pearl necklace. So precious was it to her, because it made her feel beautiful and, and valuable and important and, and grown up. And over time, the, the necklace uh, became dingy, began to chip. Uh, the string would fray a little bit and wasn't quite as beautiful as it used to be, but it was still precious to her. And her, her father, seeing that she really cared for this, goes to her one day and asks her um, if he would give her the necklace. And she refuses. She says, no, no, this is, this is my necklace. I, I, I love it. it it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's mine. And, and he goes, okay. And he lets it go. And a few days pass. He asks her again, and she refuses again. And until one day the string breaks. And all the little plastic fake pearls roll off the, roll off the string and into the floor. And she, she goes to her father with what she could scrape up in her hand and gives it to him. And he takes them and goes back to his room. And he comes back with another box and gives it to her. And inside is a string of pearls. But this time it's not costume jewelry. It's actual pearls. You see, he saw that she so valued these and, 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 and tried to take good care of them, but ultimately uh, you know, failed. But she was willing to give them up for, for something greater. And I, I like that story because it, it helps me to, to put into to my own mind kind of an image of what sacrifice is. I think sometimes we think of, of sacrifice as being a transaction, but I don't think transactions actually uh, help me get a full understanding of what a sacrifice is. Because with a, with a transaction, it, it's a, it is to some extent a fair value trade. You know, I know what I'm getting for what I am giving. And so it is this agreed transaction. But a sacrifice is more about surrender. It's about giving up something that is precious to us, and handing it over. And the thing that we are being given in return is of far greater value. It's not a fair trade. And in the case of God, what we sacrifice and what we receive in return is not a physical thing, but is this insubstantial, indescribable gift of grace. And so... Because of the nature of faith and the nature of, of sacrifice, uh, they are inextricably linked in, in God's word. So let's go into 1 Samuel. 
uh, chapter 15. We're going to read through this whole chapter, and it's a little bit of a long one, but we can get through it together. First chapter, uh, or uh, 1 Samuel 15, uh, just to kind of go over the, the first little bit here. Samuel goes to Saul and, and tells him that he is going to have to devote to destruction the Amalekites. And, and this, this phrase, devote to destruction, I think sometimes, you know, we, we see it, and well, that's, that's Old Testament language. Uh, it, it's somewhat distant to us, and the actual meaning of this is not, uh, doesn't fully penetrate what it is uh, in the reality of, of the text. You see, going all the way back to the time of Joshua, book of Joshua, all the way through Judges and into Samuel, there is this concept of devoting things to destruction. And what that is, when God, when God divinely provides for the people of Israel by conquering their enemies, there is uh, prohibitions put on what they can, what they can take. Specifically, they can't take anything. Go to the example of, of Jericho, and you think about how, how God destroys the city by, by bringing it down on the people of Jericho. Israel's armies didn't defeat Jericho. God did. And they were to devote to destruction everything in that city. That means destroy what can be destroyed, tear it down, burn whatever can be burned, kill whatever can be killed, humans and animals alike. And then anything that is left over that can't be destroyed, burned, or killed, and typically that's precious metals and gemstones, those are to be taken and put into the treasury of God so that the people of Israel aren't uh, enriching themselves off of God's deliverance of them. So that, that, the, that the gift that they are getting is the deliverance, not the monetary possessions. So, God... Through, uh, God is speaking to Saul through Samuel, telling him to devote to destruction uh, Amalek. And so, verse 4, it says, So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amaleks, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Israel. So the Kenites departed from, from the Amalekites. So Saul remembers his history. He sends out these people who had once helped Israel. He is repaying them kindness for kindness. He's showing mercy to the, to the, uh, to the Kenites. And that seems reasonable given that the command was not to kill the Kenites, but to kill the Amalekites. So he sends the, the Kenites away. And says, Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is in the east of Egypt. Now, these places don't exist anymore, and that's kind of a vague in our own minds of where these places are. But if we were to imagine a map of the Middle East, think of, think of Saudi Arabia. They're on that peninsula that lies between uh, Asia and Africa. It's this little rectangle that sticks out in the water. And on the northern part, you have... Uh, you have the, the Persian Gulf, and then you have Saudi Arabia, and then Yemen and Oman in the south. And uh, on the other side, we have the Red Sea, and then Africa and Egypt and that whole area. In the northern part of the Persian Gulf, archaeologists think that Havilah 
was up there right at the northern point of the Persian Gulf. And at the northern point of the Red Sea is where Shur was. So when Saul defeats Amalek, he's not defeating a city. He's not defeating a small area. He is defeating an area that is as large as the entire Persian Peninsula. This is not a single battle. This is most likely a prolonged campaign over a period of time that that Saul is doing this. So, verse 8, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good. They would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. One thing that should be pointed out, devoting to destruction is not sacrifice. It is obedience. So when God tells them to do this, this is an act of obedience. It is not, they're not sacrificing people and animals. There is a, a very strong division between these ideas. Devoting to destruction, um, as I've talked about before, is, is to kind of put to end all these things that belong to the people of the land. It is, in a sense, a way of of purifying and ridding the land of the influences of those cultures that did not know or serve God. And what Saul does here is deeply troubling. Because in not devoting these things to destruction, he is not recognizing God as the one who has provided. By taking these things for himself... And dividing them among his people, he's saying, we did this. He's taking the credit from God and putting it onto himself. This is serious. Verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. When we read in scripture about God regretting things, bad things happen. We go to Genesis chapter 6 and we read about the flood. God regretted making, putting humans on this earth and he flooded the planet. He regrets making Saul king. So we can trust that Saul is not long for his kingship. For he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told to Samuel... Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up for a a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul, and, and, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He lies. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears, and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes... That's important. It gives us an insight into Saul's mind. This is a person who struggles with his own self-image. Even though he is the king and the military leader of Israel, he doesn't think much of himself. And so that's probably why he's so willing 
to please the people by giving them what they want and by building himself up by putting up that monument. It comes from a, from a weak sense of self. He, he doesn't... He has a sort of a toxic sense of self-esteem that is based upon what others think about himself. It's not about what God sees in him. It's about what people see in him. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoils and and go and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which God sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted to the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen and the best things, and devoted them to destruction, to sacrifice, and the Lord your God in Gilgal. We've got some issues here with Saul's statement. You see, he says that I've obeyed, but then he says that he spared Agag. He says, I devoted to destruction all these other things, but the people kept the best stuff. Is he not king? Does he not have the authority to to stop them, to prevent this? It certainly seems that he does because he claimed victory by putting up a monument. So, So here Saul is, on one hand, denying the responsibility of the sin, yet taking the honor of the victory. You know, he'll, he'll take the good stuff, but he doesn't want responsibility for the bad stuff. You know, that's not me. That's me. And so, then he says that they were going to devote them, they were going to, they were going to sacrifice these things in Gilgal. But go back up to verse 12. They've already been to Gilgal. They went through Gilgal, and then Samuel found them after that. So if they were going to sacrifice them, they would have already been sacrificed. And then the whole idea of sacrifice here is, is really, uh, it gets confused. Because what then is the purpose of sacrifice if not to atone for disobedience? Why be disobedient in order to sacrifice? It doesn't make any sense. And Samuel said, verse 22, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices is in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. You were put to death for divination. And presumption is as iniquity as idolatry. If you're going to presume on what God says and and, and say things for God, presuming that you know his mind... You don't serve God. You serve something else. That's idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Now, on the surface, this appears to be... uh, an act of of repentance on Saul's part. But as we read on, we'll see uh, Saul will reveal himself. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. 
for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. For a man who who struggles like Saul does, who doesn't feel worthy to be king, that had to hurt. He, I think that this right here, this provides us with more insight into his relationship with David than probably any other verse in the Bible. Because when, when Saul hears the praises of the people saying that Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands, he recognizes that this is my neighbor. This is the one that's better than me. This is the one that's going to take my kingdom from me and my family. And that's why I hated David so much is because of this right here. He knew David was better than he was. And David was better because he heeded the word of the Lord. He heeded what God had to say. Verse 29. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Saul remains conflicted. He wants to hold on to his kingship and he wants to do so by by leveraging his repentance, which he believes Samuel wants for him, with Samuel honoring him before the people. You know, Samuel, if you will just reinforce what I want people to believe about me, then I'll do what you want me to do. Repentance does not come with qualifications. Verse 32. Oh, sorry. Um, So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him either cheerfully or haltingly. It depends on how we translate, uh, translate this word here. But it seems to be maybe cheerfully is probably the best way to translate this. So, so Agag comes to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely this bitterness and death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to the house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. I think we read this part about Samuel uh, killing Agag, and that just seems... It seems brutal. It seems barbaric. But what Samuel is doing, he, he is heeding the command of God, but he is also fulfilling justice. Agag was a murderer. And Samuel's response is not just obedience to God, but a fulfillment of the justice that God commands of his people. 
We can draw so much out of this story with how Saul fails to honor God through obedience and and how he seems to have this misplaced sense of what the purpose of sacrifice is. Uh, How Saul heeds the, the voices of people around him rather than listening to God. And how he refuses to take ownership of his own mistakes while at the same time taking ownership of his successes that only come to him through the power of God. So then what, what is the purpose of sacrifice? Does, does, who, who needs it? Does God need this sacrifice? I think that might have been what Saul thought. He thought that God needed this sacrifice. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. This is the scripture that the video before the lesson was referencing. Isaiah chapter 1. Starting in verse 11. The Lord is speaking, and he's speaking, it seems on the surface, to Sodom. But Sodom is actually kind of a stand-in here for for Judea, or for Judah. And and so it it may say Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's sort of uh, an insult against the the morality of of the, the Judeans. The Lord says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this, this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath are, and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure Iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. And even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds. And before my eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. That's what God wants. God wants for his people to do justice. And he speaks to this more in Isaiah 42. Turn now to Isaiah 42. First four verses. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Isaiah 53. God is speaking about 
the Messiah. And here in 53, God has been speaking about the the suffering servant here for about a chapter and a half. And we get to verse 10 of 53, and the Lord is speaking about the Messiah, saying, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We know who this is. We know Isaiah is talking about Jesus here. And so when we ask the question, who is sacrifice good for? It's not for God. It's for us. Sacrifice is good for us. The psalmist in Psalm 50 talks about this in verses 7 through 15 saying, Uh, saying similar to what Isaiah is saying in chapter 1 about how God hates this this continuing in transgression while offering sacrifices and, and that God wants us to do justice and that when we cry out to him, he will deliver us. So what sacrifice do we offer in light of Jesus? In, 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 In light of Mark chapter 10... Out of Mark chapter 10, verses uh, 42 through 45, Jesus is speaking to James and John, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a bond servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many." this idea of ransom it is it is jesus offering himself up as that atoning sacrifice he's talking about it before his death here and because of the ransom because of the atonement because we have been made clean through jesus what sacrifice is there romans 12 romans chapter 12 Paul writes, I appeal to you all, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and by the testing you may discern the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. Paul speaks in this, this way that is, it is contradictory. 
this idea of a living sacrifice, we, we know that that's an oxymoron because a sacrifice, the nature of sacrifice is to die, but we are called to be living sacrifices. So that we serve God, we not by our death, but by our life. It is this willful self-sacrifice in ourselves that is a work of obedience. When we obey God, we give up our own desires. And in so sacrificing that part of ourselves, sacrificing the flesh, we live in the Spirit. And so Paul says that we do this in response to God's mercies, in response to the forgiveness that we have through Jesus. We choose to become set apart for the use of God. That's what the whole idea of holy means, is to be set apart. And here's the beautiful thing about about holiness and, and being an acceptable sacrifice in the New Testament is Jesus, and, and I can go to a lot of scripture here, but Jesus, he goes, he finds these, these lepers, and what does he do? Lepers who are unclean, Jesus touches them. And rather than becoming ceremonially unclean, they are healed and become clean. When there's the woman with the, with the uh, perfusion of blood, she touches him. And rather than him becoming unclean, she is healed and becomes clean. There's a woman whose son has died and is being carried through the city. Dead bodies were one of the most unclean and defiling things in Israel. Jesus touches the body and he's made alive. He's made clean. Through contact with Jesus, we become holy and acceptable sacrifices to God. That's the power of Christ at work within us. So, by being obedient, we are sacrifices. Obedience keeps us from sin and keeps us in relationship with God. When we put Christ on in baptism, we are free from the bonds of sin. And we can be, what Paul says here, transformed rather than conformed. See, Saul conformed to the pattern of the world. He conformed to the desires of the people that he was surrounded by and thus was not transformed by his presence being with God. And as a result, God regretted putting him in authority and he was put aside. So when we are transformed, we can then change the world around us. Because when we don't obey, we don't transform. And if we don't transform... We cannot change a world that we are no different from. That is the beauty of the gospel. Last scripture, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews writer says in verse 19, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you have not put on Christ in baptism, no amount of good works, no no amount of, of being a nice person can save us from that fury. And if we have put on Christ and continually living in a conformed state rather than in a transformed state, that same fire is there. The only option is to be transformed and to live as a sacrifice to God. This is a beautiful time in our worship service as we can reach out to one another for help, for prayer, for a desire to change. And if, if no one comes forward, that's fine. But I would just ask that you, that you pray for me, that you pray for this congregation, that we would all live transformed lives. I love you, church. Let's stand and sing.